reading about this over the last month, it has been impressed upon me that if we don't understand the substitutionary atonement that we enjoy, we don't understand the doctrines of grace. It's just that simple. If you don't understand this, your, your understanding of God's grace in your life is deficient. And so I wanted to go ahead and try to approach this historically to show you how Israel got to the point of this atoning sacrifice and then try to apply it to you today and also explain to you some of the nuances. Um, it's more than just simply setting aside the wrath of God. There's a whole lot more to it than that. And so we'll get into that as we, as we get later into the lesson. But let's all bow in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are allowed to freely join together and, and study your word. Now I would ask simply that you cause the truth to be made evident this morning, and nothing but the truth, so that we might grow as Christians. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you will, start in Leviticus 23, and that talks about the feast days that God commanded Israel to keep. There was a weekly feast, and then there were annual feast days. There were seven of the annual feast days. And you know what the weekly feast day is? Yeah. And we have gone from a Saturday Sabbath, now that Christ has presented himself for us, to the Lord's Day, so we have a Sunday Lord's Sabbath. A, Christ, a Christian Sabbath is what it's called. Now, in looking at the lesson I just simply start with the nation of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. They had been in bondage for 400 years. Uh, Mike has been talking now about Joseph and, and the bringing of the uh, household of Jacob into Egypt and selling them in the land of Goshen. Mike, there was a lesson plan in the back if you needed one. Uh-oh, all right, well, maybe some of the couples will share one then. Mike Starnes needs one. Anyway, we have come out of bondage now after 400 years. And if, if you, as you look at some of the scripture that I've cited here, the Israelites were not particularly well treated while they were in Israel. They were put to hard labor. Now, there would have been some that had been household slaves and I'm quite sure that as they conducted those household duties, they probably learned to read and write. But for the most part, Israel was just ignorant, and they had been, uh, or they had remained in ignorance now for some time, and it's, it's a fairly large number of people. They estimate that when Israel came out of bondage, there were over 2 million of them. And so you've got these ignorant people wandering around the desert, and the only thing they had to rely on is simply their tradition. They've got elders there among the people. And you see that uh, they have come from the uh, 12 tribes. Each of those tribes has elders of its own. And these and a group of other um, enlisted men have simply maintained the traditions of Israel so that the people are aware of God and their relationship with God, but they don't have, at the time of the coming out of Israel, 
I mean, coming out of Egypt, uh, any religious holidays, they, don't, they haven't been given the law. Uh, in other words, they're just a blank slate. And so when God takes them across the Red Sea and destroys the Egyptian army, he removes from them all the threats that they have experienced. They, there are no other threats. Now, it's true that they are by themselves in the desert, and they perceive that as a threat, as you know, and they complain about not having food to eat or not having water to drink. But there is no external threat that they are, they are faced with. And so it's just God and it's his people. Now, God takes them through the desert, and after 90 days, they come to the Mount Sinai. And you know the importance of the mountain. That is where they are commanded to stop and to camp. And Moses then is called up onto the mountain, and he receives the Ten Commandments. And so as I look at the lesson plan, in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai and camped there in front of the mountain. And on the third day God descended to the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses was given the law. And what we see there is the law, and it's called the testimony as well, but it's being written on tablets of stone and deposited into the Ark of the of Testimony. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, was simply a small box. It was 27 inches wide. The, uh, it, it's shown in the Bible as a cubit. And so a cubit would differ. Sam's got a long cubit. It's, it's from the tip of his finger to the tip of his elbow. And uh, Mary Marshall's got a short cubit. Yours is going to be an inch shorter, okay? <laughs> anyway, the point is that it's roughly 18 inches. And so you're looking at a, a, a box that the testimony that the, the, the Ten Commandments were put in, 27 inches wide, 27 inches tall, and 45 inches long. And that's it. Now, the law was given to Moses... The people are beginning to understand the importance of holiness because as they approach the mountain, what are they told? They're told you're not to allow your animals or the people to come up on the mountain. God made this plain. He said if they touch the mountain, they'll die. And there were certain demonstrations. God had, God had been with the nation as they traveled through the desert, and you all know about the visible presence of God as he traveled with them, the, the fire and the cloud through the desert. And they had seen all the miracles of God in bringing them out of Egypt. And they'd seen the, the Egyptian army destroyed, uh, the Red Sea parted, all these things that have occurred. And so they're aware of God and the presence of God with them. And now you see God and descends on the mountain in the cloud. Moses goes up and the people are afraid. They don't even want to hear the voice of God. They simply want Moses to come down and tell them what God has said. And so they're beginning to understand the difference between God and man, and specifically the holiness of God, and along with that, the power of God, of course, as he's able to bring about these great wonders that they've seen. Now, as you look at the, the testimony, the, the Ten Commandments, it's to be put into this box of wood, and there is a cover to be put over this box called the atonement cover. And so we're beginning to be introduced with the idea of atonement. Now, as the Israelites then are instructed in 
the way to worship God, they are told to build a tabernacle, which is a tent, a tent of meeting. And the tabernacle, let's see if I can use this thing. Do we have any crayons for this? Do we know? All right, well, let me just describe it to you. That's all right. When you went into the courtyard of the tabernacle, you would come to the altar of sacrifice, and that's where the people would bring the lambs or the oxen, or I mean the goats or the bulls or whatever. After you get the temple of sacrifice, which all the people would come to, everybody was commanded, every family was commanded to make sacrifice. You got a, have you got a crayon? Oh, there they are. See? This is high technology for me. And so what you've got is you've got an entrance into the, into the temple and oh, the, the, the tabernacle area, the tent of meeting, and you've got this altar. And there are other uh, furnishings in this, very few, but there are a few. And then there's a big laver, and it is for washing. And then you actually get the, the um, this is the Holy of Holies. And this is where the, the, the um, Ark of the Covenant is located, right here. And there's a curtain. And as you know, they come in, and there's another altar here, and it's an altar for incense. And the high priest then, after having made sacrifice, would wash himself and would go into this area, and he would uh, be permitted in the, the outer area around this altar of incense. But once a year, he would enter into the Holy of Holies, as you know, and that was a day of atonement. Now, this is the throne room of God in the sense that this is where God would meet with the people. And there was a covering over the ark, and it is called the, um, the atonement cover of pure gold and, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold for the ends of the cover. Place the cover of the ar- uh, on the top of the ark and put, it, put, the ar- put in the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim, that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you my commands for the Israelites. And so this is the uh, throne room of God, and if you would, the, the idea is that this is the footstool of God. Now, what I wanted you to know more than anything else, all right, there's got to be a race around here somewhere. Yep. <laughs> All right. I'm, this is a whole different world for me. My dog. Thank you, sir. Really what I wanted you to see was this. You've got this little arc here, and you've got this cover over it. And inside, you've, you've got the, the Ten Commandments. They're typically shown with, with an arch. And, and this is written by the hand of God. And 
This is the law. Now, what does the law do to you? Mary, when you stand before God, if the law is all you have to depend on, what's going to happen? Okay, and so the law is a way to be condemned. The law, the law is the threat, if you will. Uh, this, this is where you don't want to be, right here. Now, this cover over the ark is where the priest sprinkles the blood. And this, then, is what protects this, this sprinkling of blood, this blood sacrifice, is what protects the people because God, then, is present, and he's looking down on this, and he's looking, instead of looking at the law, when he talks about the people of Israel, he sees this atonement cover and this, this sprinkling of blood, and the wrath of God then is appeased. It's, it's, uh, they, they have made atonement for themselves. So this, that is really what I wanted you to understand about this Ark of the Covenant. Now, Exactly. Good for you. Laurie talks about that the Bible calls that the mercy seat of God. Now, the seat was covered with blood of the atoning sacrifice for God's people so that they might not suffer the curse of the law and that they might be restored to fellowship with God. God had it intended that we enjoy the blessing of the law, but we made it a curse. God desired us to walk to walk with us in the garden as he had Adam and Eve before the fall, but Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God. The blood covering of the mercy seat allowed men to be shielded from the curse. And so, through this sacrificial system, God intended that his people understand the blessing of the coming Messiah and to confirm that God had made a way of pardon and restoration. And so Israel has seen the fear of God as they approach the mount where the, the, the Ten Commandments were given. They understood the, the danger that God posed to them but they also are beginning to understand then that there was a way of restoration. And understand now that this nation has only been with God for a little over three months. So this is very early in the education of Israel, if you will. And as you all know, what happens is then as they approach the promised land, the people hesitate. And they're fearful, and uh, they refuse to go into the promised land at first. And so what happens? They're going to spend 40 more years in the desert, and they are led by this box with the law in it and with the mercy seat covering it and the tabernacle and the, 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 the tent that, that all goes with them, all the uh, objects that have been made for worship. And so for 40 years, God trains this nation in the desert before he takes them into the promised land. And they have a clear understanding by then, of course, what the requirement is for God's people. 
Now, that's what we're trying to get to now because things have changed. We're God's people, but what is the requirement today? And so what I want to do then is I want to take you from ancient Israel and the training of the Israelites to uh, present day with Christ and particularly the end times as, as we look forward to the judgment day because judgment day is coming. Now, before we leave this, are there any questions about what went on here? Uh, it, it's been a mighty brief description for you, but there's some good theologians in this room, so I don't want to try to belabor the point. I know that you already know everything I've already told you. Casty's the only one in the room that, that might have a question. Is everybody satisfied then where we are presently? All right. Uh, I, there's no mention in the Bible that I'm aware of of the blood being uh, washed away. I'm assuming that it just has to stay there. I'm assuming that year after year that, that sprinkling would continue to build up. Yeah. Well, and what Ken's talking about is true. Not, uh, not, and to compound the problem, a lot of them had been subject to the idols that the Egyptians worshipped over that 400-year period. And so they had uh, terrible misconceptions about deity, if you will. All right, so now let's, let's travel forward and let's come to Christ and so here we are, you know, this would have occurred, David was king in, in uh, about 1100, and I don't know, this would have been 2,500 years advance in time now from the time that, that they have, have looked to the promised land where, they, where the, the nations brought out of Egypt and entered the promised land, and now we're looking at Jesus Christ. And so we see that the, or what I have written for you now on the second page or the back of the first page, the entire Old Testament canon was built around the promise of a coming Messiah. And I'm not going to try to explain to you about all the the prophecies that talk about the coming Messiah. You're all aware of that. Uh, You can go and and look at uh, all the um, direct messianic psalms, that's Psalm 2 and and Psalm 8 and 16 and um, 21 and 40 and 45 and 69. uh, The most quoted uh, psalm in the New Testament that is a direct messianic psalm is Psalm 110. 110. And so as you look at those, you'll recognize some of the quotes that refer to Christ. But anyway, the nation was given these, and they understood that a Messiah was coming. And what the reformers would tell you is that I've written down that the cross must be endured before it could be uh, explained. And so, and the, the scripture reference for that is John 16, 12, and 13. So look at John. This is part of the farewell discourse that Christ gave us just before he was arrested. As he ends that farewell discourse in John 16, 12, and 13, he says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And where we find ourselves today, of course, is realizing that what Christ was trying to convey was that, that you, you, you don't understand the cross until you've experienced it. There was no way Peter uh, was, was given knowledge that Christ was going to die, and, and what did Peter say? Lord, no, that, that's not possible. And, of course, you know, Jesus scolded him. He rebuked him at that point in time. Uh, Peter just didn't understand. Well, we understand and I'm thankful for that. Well, we understand now. We've seen the cross. And so the light shines, of John 1, 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then the reformers teach that the trail of blood leads unerringly from the gates of Eden all the way to Calvary. And that leads us to the one man, Jesus Christ. And so that, that blood that was covering this Ark of the Testament, uh, the testimony the, the, uh, that was shielding us from the law then was carried in Jesus Christ. Now, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Uh, when the Reformation finally came about, realized that there had been 1,500 years since Christ had died on Calvary, the church had uh, distorted the truths of Scripture terribly. They did not understand that it was faith that God required of us and that that requirement was something that God would actually give us. The, the Reformers understood that God had requirements, and you all see that in the covenant when it was first given. The nation of Israel, God talks about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Well, there are requirements in the covenant, and those requirements haven't changed. The only difference is we understand that God gave those requirements that he himself would provide. And then he provided to us the very requirements that we're expected to keep. And then he accepted that which he gave us. And that's the idea of grace. But nevertheless, the reformers talked about, or Martin Luther, when he first came to a knowledge of Christ, a really a saving knowledge, it was Romans 1, 1 17, excuse me. The righteous shall live by faith. Some scripture says the righteous shall live by his faith. And so what I've done is the the as Paul writes the book of Romans, he gets to 117, and then he changes his discussion, and he talks about the sinfulness of man and the inability of a man to come to salvation apart from God's grace. And so he, he, we, we get to the, the Reformation text, the righteous will live by faith, and then you turn over to Romans 3, 25 and 26, and in, in 321 we begin a description of what justification by faith is, but 325 tells us God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So now here you see the word atonement used. And so this idea that the feast that Israel was expected to keep, and I showed you the, the Leviticus 
um, 23, it showed the various feast days that Israel was required to keep. The first being the Passover. The sixth of the seven annual feasts was the Day of Atonement. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, Christ is seen in multiple ways in the New Testament. He's seen as our Passover or as the Passover lamb. He's also seen as our atoning sacrifice. And so why is it then that you've got different feasts, Passover being when Israel first came out of Egypt, atonement being a requirement set in an entirely different time, 90 days later, when Israel realized that this, sacrifice, this blood sacrifice was necessary to protect them from the, the judgment of God. But how is it that Christ can be both? And all I would tell you is that the ceremonial system that had been put in place by God that carried Israel from the coming out of Egypt to the, to the, to the uh, birth of Christ had been abolished then, or it had, I won't say abolished, it, it is abolished, but uh, it's replaced now for you with Jesus Christ because he is our Passover. He, he, uh, the Passover was when the blood was smeared over the door so that the death angel would not take the firstborn. Well, the Avery family has that blood spread over his door. John and Leanne don't see it when they walk in the door, but it's there. Every, they, they apply that blood every time they say prayers for Evan and, and Jenna and their grandchildren. It, uh, it's just it's there. And you see the same thing true with all the feasts. The atoning sacrifice was in the seventh month of the year, and it was the time when the, the priest went into the Holy of Holies that once a year, and we enjoy the same thing now. The only difference is... When Christ died, what happened to that curtain that separated the, the Holy of Holies from the rest of us? Yeah. Yeah, it was just torn apart. You have been invited in to the Holy of Holies where only the priest could go. And that's one of the reasons that you're referred to as a royal priesthood. But anyway, let's talk a little bit now about how we can expect going forward uh, this to apply to us. We've seen the, the Reformation text and, and this Romans 3.25 where we're talked about it or, or we're, we're given this atoning sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And so Christ accomplished then uh, at his first coming uh, as the Lamb of God.
Okay. All right. So if anybody needs this lesson plan, it's Erica has it. Now, as you look at Revelation, uh, Revelation uh, 5, 1 and 6, And I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne of the scroll. Uh, and I saw a lamb, looking as it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And you find out the lamb opens the scroll, and you already know what happens. Uh, the lamb is the only one that's worthy to open that scroll. But we also see then that there are large numbers of people that oppose the lamb. Now, they have one purpose, and it will give them their power and authority to the beast. They, they make war with the lamb, but the lamb will ever come them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and with him will be his call chosen faithful followers and that's all of us and so finally the lamb will come and when he does this next time this is to bring judgment he is our savior he is our lord but he is also our judge and to me the scariest scripture scariest uh, verse in all of scripture is the Romans, I mean the Revelation 19 scripture that I'm getting ready to read to you. Out of, the, out of his mouth will come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We have seen the power of God, and we can imagine the power of God, but when you put it all together and talk about the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, that to me is frightening. I don't fully understand it. Uh, it, it is, um, it's going to be a terrible time. Right, I don't know how to, to even capture for you a picture of it, uh, the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. Nevertheless, that's going to be a terrible day for a lot of folks. And God is going to exercise his divine right. All of a sudden, the people that don't find themselves under this mercy seat of God they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be absolutely wiped away. And it's not so much that they will be destroyed. A lot of folks would tell you that there's not a hell, that you just die and you just turn, return to the dust. There's going to be eternal torment for those people that aren't covered by the blood of Christ. And that's why Nathan is so careful to bring his daughters. That's why y'all... Bring your children. That's why we tolerate my little circus in the front left corner up here. It, it, uh, sometimes I just want to strangle them, but they need to hear the gospel. So now as we get into the actual blessing that you receive in Jesus Christ, we're going to talk a little bit about the atonement. The atonement The atonement uh, is simply 
described as turning aside God's wrath. And that's what you'll see in a lot of the footnotes in the Bibles that we have that describe some of the scriptures that are presented in the Bible. But it's a whole lot more than just simply the wrath of God being turned aside. There was a tremendous amount of work that God did, a sacrifice that he made, so that we might enjoy this atonement covering, that we might enjoy uh, the blessing of Christ and, and the shedding of his blood. And I have chosen as the first of the various doctrines, and a doctrine is simply what the church teaches. Doctrine is not um, scripture. Scripture is inerrant and it's inspired, but the doctrines that we teach are simply what we believe the Bible tells us. In, in a, we try to put what the Bible tells us in a concise manner so that you don't have to read the whole thing to get a sense of, of what it is that God is trying to convey to us. Yes? Good. Three twenty-five, twenty-six. Yeah. It talks about his sacrifice of atonement. Exactly. That's a good question. No, uh, they're not different. King James used propitiation. It's a word we don't normally use today, and so I chose that instead of atonement uh, because what you're talking about is important. And so I want to I talk about just this very thing, the differentiation between propitiation and atonement for just a minute so maybe you'll have a better understanding of uh, what it involves. The idea of propitiation... That's right. Y'all are getting the heart of this. The propitiation is simply uh, God's wrath as it, as, as it is addressed uh, and done away with. Expiation is the consequence of that wrath being removed from you. And, and the best way to describe this is goes back to the um, Day of Atonement, and I told you that there were different feasts that were celebrated. If you look back in Leviticus 16, you, you'll understand you had in 23 those, those various feast days that were required. But if you look in, in Levit, Leviticus 16, beginning in, in uh, verse 6, Aaron is to offer a bull for his own offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Now, Aaron was the high priest, and he was the one that was going to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the sacrifice. So Aaron makes a, a, an offering for himself so he won't be destroyed. He cleanses himself in a sense. 
Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lot for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron will bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. So one goat is killed and his blood is used then to sprinkle on the ark, and that's the sin offering. But you've got two goats, so what happens to the other goat? But the goat chosen by Lot as a scapegoat will be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. And so in trying to, to clarify what y'all are talking about, and which is, is exactly right, in this idea of propitiation, you've got the slaughtering of the goat and you've got the blood sacrifice then that is made because of the sin of the people, and the goat is, is receiving what you, Laurie, deserve. You ought to be destroyed because of your sin, but you are not. At the same time, Bible makes it plain that when you sin, but you are received into Jesus Christ, what does God do with your sin? Well, five, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 addresses that. If you go back and look, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, what happens? We might become, yeah. And so the idea then of expiation is that sin is removed from Ken, and God looks at Ken and, and sees a righteous soul. You don't deserve it, but you've received it. Yeah, wrath removed and righteousness replaced. And so there are two things that happen there with the idea of, of atonement, propitiation, and that, that uh, the blood has been offered and a death had to occur because of that blood. But at the same time, the sin has been removed and it's no longer there and it's no longer yours. It belongs to Jesus Christ and his righteousness has become yours. And that's just the beginning of the gift that you've received. Now, as you look at the other doctrines associated with the atonement, you get into substitution. And each one of these is important in its own way, and I'll try to describe to you best I can. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is a doctrine of substitution. That blood is poured out. is not divine blood. It is human blood. The idea then is that God did not take something that was not like you and make an offering that was supernatural, if you will, but he took a, a man just like Sam in every way. The only difference is that Christ had no sin. And so when, when the substitution occurred, it was necessary that Christ be of the same nature. That's what the Reformers talked about. And this is, this is the doctrine of the grace of God. This is salvation by grace. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Just as the result of the one trespass was condemnation for all men, so, so also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. 
the ideas and that we all fell in Adam. And that is difficult for some people to understand. It's the idea that Adam was a perfect man. God did not choose to create a man and put him in the Garden of Eden uh, that was inferior in any way to anyone here. It's, it's funny to me that we would think that we ought to be given a chance to rise or fall on our own merit, that, we, that, that it's not fair that we should be included in Adam. Well, Adam was a perfect man. He was created without any sin. And so when, Adam, when God chose Adam and he placed Adam in the garden and Eve, uh, that was better than anything that we could offer for ourselves. It was, they were perfect people. And so it's foolish for us to think that we, in and of ourselves, could present to God something better, something more acceptable to him than what Adam and Eve were chosen for us to, to present to God. It just couldn't happen. You know, I think Erica's a sweet girl, but Erica's a sinner. You know, uh, like it or not, uh, Christian, you in trouble sometimes, boy. You just don't realize it. <laughs> but Adam's sin is imputed to us as his children, and this is the doctrine of original sin. In the same way, our sin is imputed to Christ so that he suffers the consequence of it. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and secures our entrance into heaven. And Philippians 3.9 tells us that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now this is the idea of substitution. Christ has taken our place. He is a man. He is God, but he is also a man. And in that station as a man, he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Hebrews 2.17 talks about the idea that he is our representative. Read that to you right quickly. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So that's the idea of substitutionary atonement. And so we've seen this idea of, of propitiation um, and expiation put together. Now this idea of substitution, but it goes beyond this. And so as you look at the back of the last page, you get to this idea of reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not committing men's sins against them, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, as you think about this idea of reconciliation, this is an important distinction I hope you'll capture. Look at Matthew 6. This is a Sermon on the Mount. Actually, excuse me, it's Matthew 5. And as Christ talks about the various 
sins that are, would be uh, are committed, and it, the, 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 that Matthew five talks about the fulfillment of the law and the fact that not one jot or tittle will change in the law; that it must be satisfied. But in in Matthew five, in verse twenty three. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, this idea of reconciliation is important. In that scripture, when Christ talks about how reconciliation is to occur, you've got an offended party. And you've got the one that commits the offense. Who is it that's commanded to go and make reconciliation? The, one, the offender. That's right. The one that has committed the offense is commanded to go and make reconciliation. And so what happens? He's to leave the altar to go and reconcile with the man that he's offended. And then he is to return to the altar and God will find his worship acceptable. With this idea of reconciliation in Christ, who took the step to reconcile us to Christ? God did. And so what I'm telling you is that God reasonably should have expected you to come and make reconciliation. You're the one that committed the offense. It wasn't God. It wasn't his responsibility to, to come and, and uh, say to Debbie, you need to repent and to turn from your sin and to ask my forgiveness. It wasn't God's responsibility to do that. But that's what God has done. And not only has he told her that that's her responsibility, he has provided the means for restitution for, for, for reconciliation for the forgiveness of that sin and the wiping away of that sin and so God has done this for each one of us he has reconciled us to himself that was not his responsibility that's the beauty of the covenant of grace God had requirements that he placed on us but then he, he has given to us all that he required and he's accepted everything that he's given us. It's all of God. And that reconciliation is so very special to us. And like I say, it was our responsibility. And there's no way that we could have done that. Kyle would never on his own have done that. So God has done it for him. Now, when it comes to sufficiency, this is another doctrine that deals with the atonement. You've got what is known as both the active and the passive obedience of Christ. And in the active obedience of Christ, that is the, the, the obedience that Christ rendered as he lived as a man. And so as you try to understand what Christ has done for you, realize that he suffered his entire life at the hands of wicked men. And as you know... You know it just got worse and worse and worse, and, and I did not see the passion of Christ, but apparently you know, that was a, a, a pretty horrible picture of what actually happened to Christ immediately before his crucifixion.
But Christ had a hard life. And so in the fact that he, he lived a sinless life, that was his active obedience. His passive obedience is knowing that he was not guilty, knowing that he bore no responsibility at all for the accusations of the men that were made against him, that he had, he had said nothing that was untrue, and yet he, he submitted himself to punishment. He allowed himself to be crucified. That's the passive obedience of Christ. He willingly went to the cross, and the reason he did it is just for you. He did it for Ryan. He did it for me, for each one of us. And so the Westminster Confession says it most plainly. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. And so the, the, the sacrifice that he made was entirely sufficient, both in living and dying. Now when it comes to the idea of ransom, that is another term that's used in Scripture. And we see it in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This brought to mind something that Ryan and I share. Uh, it, it's some of the stories of Scotland and the Solway martyrs. And it's a, it's a sad story. You've got an older woman, Margaret McLaughlin, and you've got two sisters, the Wilsons. Agnes is the younger She's only 13, and then her older sister, Margaret. And they are Presbyterian. The English are Episcopalian, and the Episcopalians hold or wanted to hold that the king was head of the church. Well, the Scots, in their stubbornness, just simply wanted to recognize or, or refuse to recognize the king as head of the church, rather the Christ as head of the church. And the Presbyterians were right. Christ is the head of the church. That being said, that and a variety of other um, commitments the Scots had made under the National Covenant in 1643 led the, the king of England in his wrath to... Uh, condemned the Scots, and over the period of another 40 years, he persecuted them to the point of killing a bunch of them. And this is the Solway, story of the Solway martyrs. Uh, Solway Firth is just simply a, an inlet from the Irish Sea, uh, which uh, is on the border of Scotland and England. And it's a big tidal marsh, and the tide goes out, and you can walk across it, and the tide comes in, and it's above your head. And so uh, these women were tied to stakes out in this tidal marsh. And Margaret McLaughlin being the older, and they figured that she was less likely to recant or to, to accept the king as the head of the church. Uh, she was tied furthest out toward the sea, and she was the first to drown, and then Margaret Wilson. And these, the idea was that the younger women would be allowed to visually see what was happening because of their stubbornness, and maybe they would recant. Well, Margaret Wilson did not, but the father 
of Margaret Wilson and Agnes's daddy pled for Agnes's life. And um, I've, I've written for you here that he was given the opportunity to ransom his daughter, and it cost him all he had. It ruined him financially. But his daughter was spared, and the uh, anyway, it's just a sad story. But the idea then that Christ has, has been given as a ransom for you, and so that it took his life so that yours might be spared. And that is exactly what's happened for each one of us. And finally, when it comes to the value, this is important today in more ways than, than I realize. The question is as to the power and to the extent of Christ's sacrifice. The power is infinite in the sense that uh, Christ saves all for whom he has been, uh, or for all that have been given to him, for all whom he died. Um, and that could have been all men. It wouldn't have made any difference. It, it, Christ, um, there's an infinity associated with Christ in that his righteousness is uh, immeasurably larger than all the sin of all of us together. He could have saved all men, but that's not what we are taught in the Bible. We, taught, we are taught that the extent of Christ's sacrifice is those to whom he was given. And the importance is this. If Christ died for all men, then all men ought to be saved because Christ's sacrifice is perfect. There's nothing uh, that diminishes his sacrifice in any way. The fact that all men aren't saved goes to the idea of a, what we call a particular atonement. So that Christ's sacrifice is perfect in that it saves all those that have been given him by his Father. The scripture tells us that no man can come to the Father unless what happens? Who, who has to draw us? God does. And so it is not a matter of what we choose to do, and that's, that's the difference in this particular idea of an uh, unlimited atonement. The, the, the Arminians, the folks that follow Jacob, Arminians' teachings, talk about uh, they limit the atonement as to its power. It simply makes salvation a possibility. In other words, they're telling us that Christ died for everybody, but on the, on, on the other hand, we know that everybody's not saved. So what has happened? In their theology, that means that each of us, Lee has to, to, to go to God and say, I want to be saved in order to be saved in that system of theology. And we already know that Lee has no possibility of going and being saved by asking. She, she just will not do that. As sweet as she is, she just will not bend her will to God unless God acts on her behalf. And so the, we believe or we teach that simply that the value of the atonement is perfect, but it is particular because uh, it is given just to those that God has chosen to save. And we don't know why God hasn't chosen to save all people. 
I won't try to pretend to you that I understand why in the world I have received this blessing. I don't deserve it. But I have received it. And I know people in my own family that are better people, better men than I am, that have not received the blessing that I've received. I don't know why they didn't receive it. I have no idea why they didn't receive it. Anyway, the idea is that the value of the atonement is immense and it is perfect. It, uh, it saves all that Christ has been given. It is not defective in any way. And the, the Arminian idea is that it is defective in the sense that it cannot save unless a man chooses to be saved. And that's just wrong theology. Anyway, these are some of the doctrines that that come out of the idea of the atonement. And the atonement is the Mac Daddy of our doctrine. If you don't understand the atonement, then you, know, you just don't understand grace. You don't understand the gift that you have received from God. And so of all the doctrines, I know my sister told me one time she didn't have time for doctrine. Well, you better have time for this one. If you don't understand this one, you've got a real problem. And you don't have to believe me, but if you don't understand it, um, talk to Mike about it or read more about it. Try to really be grounded in the in the the atoning sacrifice that covers your sin and allows you to, to fellowship with God. Let's all bow in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we have together. I thank you for the civility of, of the, the class and, and the kindness of the people as they listen to what is said. And I would simply ask that as I am incorrect, as I have said something incorrectly, I hope that, that there's a freedom among your people to correct me. And to the extent that we all need correction, I would ask simply that you allow us to come to a knowledge of the truth and to adjust our thinking as we learn more of Jesus Christ and to be thankful for the, the correction that we do enjoy, knowing that it is because you love us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.